She sleeps hot, even when the weather outside is frightful. Jack Frost here likes it cool. Introducing the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Now temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But will it keep me asleep? Yes. It intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you both effortlessly comfortable. Will I have more energy for holiday shopping? Does Rudolph have a red nose? Save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base. Plus special financing ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political commentator for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, Polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Uh, if you want to learn more about my uh, political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. Uh, welcome to all of you who are watching us on Twitter or Periscope TV. If you want to watch us on Periscope TV, uh, you can uh, access the show at www.periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Now you can also watch Deadline DC on Facebook by visiting tinyurl.com forward slash BB facebook live our guest in our first half hour is colonel cedric glayton u.s air force retired uh he is going to uh he's going to discuss with us the rocky transition of power between uh donald trump uh and joe biden on national security issues in the second half hour we'll have our usual political chat with our provocative progressive political panel our guest on the panel today is Kimberly Scott, the uh, publisher of Demlist, and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Our guest in the first half hour today is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force, retired. Uh, he is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company in 2010 after serving in the Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attaining the rank of colonel. Uh, Layton can be seen regularly on CNN, where he is a an military analyst, and the, his Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-A-I-G-H-T-O-N. 
His website is CedricLayton.com. Colonel Layton, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm glad you could join us. Brad, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, we're going to discuss, uh, start off by discussing the uh, transition of power. I guess there really isn't one uh, between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, because as you heard in the uh, news report, uh, the president is still insisting he won. Uh, Let's start off with this. I just read a story on CNN website that says that the Pentagon expects the president to issue an order uh, for U.S. troops to leave Afghanistan and Iraq uh, by January 15th. Uh, what do you think of this? Sounds kind of uh, precipitous to me. Yeah, Brad, it, it is precipitous. And it's, uh, you know, this is one of those uh, areas where uh, the president, uh, President Trump, made a, a commitment uh, to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, to end the so-called forever wars. The problem with that is it's well and good to end wars, but you have to remember the enemy gets a vote in these kinds of situations. Uh, The enemy is basically saying, you know, we're not done with you yet. We're not, uh, you know, if even if they're not going directly against U.S. forces, what they are doing is they're going after the governments that we have propped up ever since uh, basically 9-11 in the case of Afghanistan or since 2003 uh, in the case of, of Iraq. And uh, so we're, what we're looking at here is maintaining a reservoir of uh, 2,500 troops in each of the countries, uh, Iraq and 2,500 in Iraq, 2,500 in Afghanistan. That is really far less, uh, you know, obviously than we had at the uh, at the top of our uh, troop presence over the years in in those countries. Uh, but uh, it is also a lot, uh, very a very minimal presence that will make it very difficult for us to really achieve our goals in each of those countries. And that's where uh, this withdrawal becomes a truly precipitous event and is one in which, uh, you know, we really have to be careful that we don't uh, open the door to a resurgence of ISIS, uh, to more Iranian activity in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, and also more Taliban activity in the case of Afghanistan. Okay, let's talk about another uh, example of the uh, rocky transition. Uh, Last week, I believe, uh, the president uh, had a purge at the Pentagon where uh, he uh, fired uh, some top officials and put in some Trump loyalists. What do you have to say about that? Well, it's a really odd time uh, to be removing people. You know, you've, you're basically at the you know less than seventy day point uh, before the inauguration, and uh, you are in a situation where you need uh, to keep the people that have been there for at least a little bit, uh, so that they can in essence, make that transition work to, uh, you know, to the Biden administration, to the incoming Biden administration. Uh, This action where he's put in these loyalists, uh, many of them have some very questionable 
backgrounds in terms of, uh, you know, not only uh, expertise, but also, or lack thereof, but also uh, they, they're very uh, controversial in a lot of their, their political and policy statements. Um, it is, in essence, gumming up the works. And I think it's a very deliberate ploy by the Trump administration to make life not only difficult for the Biden, incoming Biden administration, but also to, uh, you know, in essence, uh, make it very hard for for us to actually continue with uh, uh, different policies that the United States has been uh, really engaged in for many years that even preceded the Trump administration. So it's a very dangerous move. It's a very, um, it's a move that I think, uh, you know, really harkens back to, uh, you know, one of a control freak uh, trying to exercise maximum control until the very last instance that they're in charge. And uh, it's a very, very, uh, you know, dangerous dangerous move, I think, for the country. Well, let me ask you, uh, one of the things that has been an issue is that the uh, Trump administration is not providing uh, national security uh, briefings to the president-elect, Joe Biden. Now, I don't know much about national security policy, but it's a very, I do know enough to know it's a very dangerous world out there. And how dangerous is this, uh, you know, not giving uh, the new president uh, access to national security briefings? Uh, we, We just, this seems very dangerous to me. Oh, it is. It's, you know, I mean, if you look at it, uh, you know, when you were involved in, you know, working with clients and uh, let's say you were switching from one person to another and they don't tell you, uh, you know, what uh, what you should know about the new uh, the new person and uh, the new client even, uh, that can be a, a real problem. And here that it's magnified really a hundredfold because uh, what you're doing here is you have a Uh, a, a situation where you have so many moving parts around the world. You have, uh, you know, different things happening. You've got stuff going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We've got stuff going on in Belarus. We've got stuff going on in Peru, just to name three very disparate places. And, uh, you know, the Biden administration is obviously going to follow things uh, from the news reports that they get. But uh, intelligence reports can provide a lot of color, a lot of background, a lot of, uh, you know, knowledge that you don't necessarily get from from the open press, and that will be missing, and that can hinder diplomatic initiatives. It can also hinder intelligence operations, as well as, you know, in uh, extreme cases, military operations. And you're right, it is an extremely dangerous thing to do. Okay. Uh, In the first half hour of Deadline DC, we are talking to Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, national security policy, and especially the Iraqi transition of power uh, between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, We're going to uh, go to break for our radio listeners, uh, but we'll stay in, uh, hang in here and just talk to Colonel Layton with our Periscope TV uh, viewers. And by the way, if you're a radio listener and you'd like to watch us uh, and watch the show between the breaks, uh, you can access the show at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, and then you don't have to uh, miss uh, any of our discussions. We'll be back right after these messages with more of Deadline DC. 
If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Our guest is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, uh, national security effort. Uh, we're discussing uh, some of the national security and foreign policy issues that Joe Biden uh, will need to grapple with uh, once he becomes president uh, without any help and a lot of interference from the Trump administration in the meantime, which is now uh, 65 days. You know, in the last segment on Periscope TV, we discussed the uh, attempts of uh, Chinese government to suppress democracy uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, we also have issues with the People's Republic of China, uh, who, which is trying to expand its influence in the South China Sea at the expense of ally, American allies like the Philippines and Japan. Uh, and then, of course, there's always North Korea. What can Joe Biden do? Uh, you know, what kind of le- does he have any kind of leverage to deal with the Chinese to deal with these challenges in Hong Kong and the South China Sea? What, if anything, can Joe Biden do? Right, that's an excellent question. The uh, I think the biggest thing that Joe Biden has going for him is uh, the fact that he has personal contacts uh, and has worked with uh, President Xi of China uh, before, uh, you know, while he was vice Vice President most recently. And the Chinese know him. Uh, they believe that he will be a better partner uh, than uh, Donald Trump uh, has been. Uh, and in essence, they're looking forward, uh, for the most part, to working with the, the incoming Biden administration. Uh, so that can be a good thing. Uh, you know, on the flip side of that, of course, uh, you know, the uh, the people from the Trump administration or, uh, you know, more uh, hardline folks, uh, you know, in regard to China are going to look Look for any sign that Biden may be weakening toward China, that he won't uh, impose the kinds of uh, restraints uh, that uh, Trump has imposed and will probably continue to impose during this uh, 65-day period we have before the inauguration. So, uh, you know, I think uh, President-elect Biden will have to walk a fine line, but he's certainly capable of doing it, and he can be tough on China and yet still engage with the Chinese without us getting into to a major conflict if it's handled properly. Now, why do the Chinese think that Joe Biden is a better partner than Donald Trump? I think that they believe that, uh, well, first of all, he's a known quantity uh, to them. And, uh, you know, they think that he may continue the types of policies that President Obama had uh, vis-a-vis China, Uh, you know, things like uh, achieving a cyber agreement with the Chinese. Uh, President Obama did that. It wasn't really trumpeted uh, very much uh, during the Obama presidency. And, of course, we haven't heard very much about it, uh, you know, in, in recent times. But uh, those kinds of initiatives, uh, plus perhaps reinstituting, although nobody has really talked about this, but perhaps reinstituting uh, something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, something that Donald Trump derided, can give us leverage uh, vis-a-vis the Chinese. And they know they're going to have somebody who's not going to be, uh, you know, in a cakewalk for them, but they also want to have some degree of stability. Uh, with Trump, what they had 
had was somebody who, uh, on the one hand, would praise President Xi for his COVID-19 response uh, for the first few weeks of uh, of the pandemic, and then would turn around and criticize Xi uh, for uh, not being transparent enough, uh, you know, in, in Trump's words. So there, there are a lot of uh, things that the Chinese don't like about the current administration. In some ways, they think they could they could manipulate it, but in other ways, uh, they believe that uh, the unpredictability of the Trump administration is something that they they consider to be very dangerous, and they would prefer to have somebody that they uh, can at least figure out what their next moves are going to be, or at least they think they can do that. So that's one of the main reasons why I think they would support, uh, you know, be more uh, favorably disposed uh, to a Biden administration. It sounds like the Chinese, like many Americans, are looking for a president who's less erratic personally. Yeah, Okay. Let's uh, uh, change the subject. Uh, There's a lot of speculation about uh, Joe Biden's uh, national security team. Uh, Let's start with the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Mm -hmm. The most prominent name I've heard is uh, Michelle uh, Flournoy. I don't know how to pronounce Mm -hmm. her name, really. Uh, She seems to be the one who gets the most mention, although I've also heard some talk about uh, the U.S. Senator from Illinois, Tammy Duckworth, who is a uh, which who's a veteran of the armed forces. and uh, anyway, let's start with uh, Flournoy. What can you tell our listeners and um, viewers about her? Yes, Michelle Flournoy is actually a very experienced defense policy hand. Uh, she uh, served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, she is connected with a lot of other people in uh, President-elect Biden's orbit, uh, is very uh, considered to be a moderate on many defense issues. Uh, she uh, you know, does question some of the modernization programs that uh, uh, the service have come up with in in recent years. Uh, She is not one to actually want to precipitate armed conflict, but once she's engaged in conflict or once the U.S. is engaged in that conflict, she wants to see it uh, to to its logical conclusion. And in some ways, it would uh, be complementary, that that kind of an approach would be complementary to uh, what uh, many of us perceive to be uh, President-elect Biden's approach to uh, national security issues. Uh, You know, reluctant to get involved, but once you're involved, you stay the course and, uh, you know, hopefully you see it uh, to a logical conclusion. Um, There are, you know, certainly uh, things out there that can surprise anybody, no matter how well uh, trained they are. But uh, uh, Michelle Flournoy uh, brings a lot of high-level credentials. She's uh, part of a think tank known as West Exec Advisors uh, right now. And uh, she is uh, on the big speaking circuit, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for a lot of these defense issues. And that, uh, I think, gives her a, a lot of um, credibility uh, within defense policy circles, and she's also seen favorably uh, by a lot of Republicans as well. Okay. Uh, what about, uh, and also I, we should point out, if she does get the job, she would be the first female uh, Secretary of Defense in American history, uh, and this is the uh, uh, a time where we're breaking lots of new ground, and she could be part of it. Uh, let's turn to Secretary of State 
Uh, one name I've heard is uh, Susan Rice, who was uh, formerly UN ambassador and uh, the, the President Obama's national security advisor. Uh, she is uh, a fairly uh, uh, f- figure who comes from with some baggage. Uh, uh, Republicans may attack her for the Obama uh, administration's handling of the uh, crisis in Libya. Uh, what do you know about uh, Susan Rice uh, as a possible Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of State, excuse me? Sure. Uh, yeah, she she could certainly, uh, you know, from a credentialing perspective, she could fill that role, you know, as both as having been the national security advisor, uh, but also, uh, you know, with her uh, UN experience as ambassador to the UN. Uh, so in many ways, on paper, she would be a very logical choice. Uh, she's extremely well educated. She has a lot of, uh, you know, different uh, connections. Uh, she's uh, yeah, Cedric, well- I'm going to have to interrupt you because sadly, I was so involved in the conversation and wasn't paying attention to the clock. Uh, thanks to our guests, uh, Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, we'll be back after this break with our provocative progressive political panel with Demlist publisher Kim Scott and Mark Grimaldi. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. second half hour, uh, we're going to uh, have our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, But uh, before we do that, uh, I want to talk about the election results. Uh, Joe Biden's victory was a step forward for a nation mired in Trump's incompetence on most issues and indifference to the COVID-19 pandemic that has killed more than 240,000 Americans. Americans and brought the economy to its knees. The failure of Democrats to win back the Senate and to increase their majority in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, means that the 46th president won't have much help in moving the nation forward to confront the serious problems that faced the country. The party's lackluster performance gives the GOP leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, the power to blunt Biden's legislative initiatives unless Democrats win both Senate runoff elections in Georgia on January 5th. Election day was a disaster for Democrats, except at the highest level. Conditions were ripe for Democratic victory up and down the ballot. The nation was in the throes of a health care and economic crisis caused by an unpopular Republican president. The Democrats had tons of money and plenty of vulnerable GOP targets, but failed to win decisively. In the aftermath of a presidential victory, criticizing Democratic performance is like being a skunk at the garden party. But the down-ballot campaign failed miserably for Democrats. 
It's time for the party to take a good, good hard, cold look in the mirror. Uh, welcome to our uh, progress, provocative progressive political panel. Um, our guests are Mark Romaldi, progressive political activist, and Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist. Uh, Demlist is a political column dedicated to educating the uh, public uh, about the Democratic Party policy and politics. Sign up for the column is at uh, www.demlist.com. Okay, let's start with this. Uh, millions of Americans are glad that uh, uh, Joe Biden won the presidential election. Um, although Donald Trump hasn't got the memo yet, it will surely work its way to the White House um, by January 20th. Uh, but the reality is that uh, things at beyond below the presidential race uh, did not go very well for Democrats. Uh, we failed uh, to capitalize an opportunity uh, to win control of the United States Senate. Uh, we still have a chance at that uh, if we win both Georgia's uh, Senate races on January 5th. Uh, so fail to pick up any state legislative chambers, uh, which is very dangerous because uh, those dominated Republicans, uh, Republican dominated state legislators uh, will have the power to do the uh, congressional and state legislative redistricting uh, that will guide us for the next 10 years. Uh, so let's start with uh, Mark. Mark, uh, what do you make of the lack of Democratic performance uh, under the presidential race? What happened and what can we do to change it? Well, I think, you know, if you're talking about the biggest difference, obviously, you know, Joe Biden performed very well. So I think you need to start with what did go well. Um, you know, unseating an incumbent president hasn't been done in quite some time, I believe. What, was it Jimmy Carter, Brad, the last one? I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, or no, Clinton I'm sorry, George H.W., right? Bush. And then before that, I believe, was Carter. Um, so, you know, it's been quite some time. And I think the other thing to consider is, you know, the president had a lot more support than folks thought he did coming into this election. Um, you know, his performance was a lot better than folks thought, which I think is a wake up call to, you know, the Democratic Party. Um, but we also turned out our voters. Um, I think, you know, the question is the, the easiest way to just start is, OK, well, where where what states and what type of folks were voting for Joe Biden, but then voting down ballot for Republicans? And what do some of the exit polls say, you know, when you talk to those folks? Now, there were some uh, races, like I, I saw some interesting exit polling, like Susan Collins, Joni Ernst, where folks were asked, are you voting for this senator because that's who you want? Or are you voting for this senator because you want to have, quote unquote, you know, a check on power in D.C. so the Democrats won't have all three branches of government? And a very high percentage voted for the latter, which was to have a check on power. Um, 
when it comes to that, you know, that's a hard argument to win over, you know, maybe at first, but then I, I think the easy way is you just point to the obstruction of Mitch McConnell and say, is this really what you're looking for in the time of COVID-19 crisis um, with zero movement um, since May when the HEROES Act passed in Congress? Um, when you're talking about deeper issues, which is what much of the conversation um within democratic circles has been about, um, at least on the surface, it's been the, you know, oh, AOC versus Joe Manchin, you know, the most progressive wing of the democratic party, you know, arguing with the most conservative wing of the democratic party. And I think part of that is, you know, regional, um, you look at different parts of the country. I know we're going to get into the discussion about ballot initiatives later in the conversation, but I also thought that really was a really good source of information to see the different way that folks voted, voted on different ballot issues, on different hot-button issues throughout different parts of the country. And I think that really makes a big difference when, you know, you're talking about um, what do you, what do you, ch how do you change your messaging? Well, I think the hyper local messaging really works. I mean, look at the way that, you know, some of the, 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 the Trump folks, their messaging was able to perform in Florida versus how well Democrats were able to do in places like Arizona and Georgia. So I think focusing on those demographics, um, makes a big difference. Um, Brad, I know we're going to try to bring in Kim here. So um, do you want to just give your thoughts on that? Maybe the regional tendencies? Well, I do uh, yeah, there are some regional tendencies. But, uh, you know, I think uh, you were referring to the uh, exit poll on the uh, Susan Collins race. And I think that has uh, something to do with it. I think we're the uh, reality is that... Uh, uh, after four years of Donald Trump running, uh, I think we got to ditch that. Untrammeled. Uh, I think uh, places like Maine, uh, voters were looking for some balance. Uh, and uh, after four years of an imperial presidency, uh, they probably wanted to check on uh, the new president, Joe Biden. You know, I think uh, that's a good point, Brad. Unfortunately, I think Joe Biden gets tied to how destructive um, Donald Trump was with a Republican Congress and Senate the first two years and how little they actually got done, when in reality, that's not a very nuanced look at things. I mean, I, I think you're talking about you want to look at the most, you know, comparable situation, look back to the first two years of the Obama administration. That was the last time Democrats had all three branches of government versus just saying the last time either party had all three branches of government. And those two years, you had the economic stimulus and the Affordable Care Act. And look how popular those things are. So, you know, maybe that's an indication that Democrats d didn't do a good job on messaging for those issues. Um, you know, I, I, but I, those were very two very popular things, especially now. Now, obviously, the Affordable Care Act grew in popularity big time compared to where it was polling initially, um, you know, in, in 2010 when uh, Republicans took over the House. But you look at those issues now and you say those that's what was done the last time Democrats had uh, power of all three branches of government. I think you're going to have a, a positive reaction by a majority of Americans um, when you look at how popular the 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 last stimulus was um, during COVID-19 and you look at the percentage of popularity for the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Uh, 
We're going to go to a break now for our radio listeners, uh, but we'll continue this discussion on Periscope.tv. And by the way, that uh, address for Periscope TV is Periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. If you want to keep watching, uh, we'll be back with our radio listeners in a couple of minutes. We'll continue the discussion with our viewers on Periscope TV. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We are discussing politics with our provocative progressive political panel. Um, our guests are Kimberly Scott, who is the publisher of Demlist, uh, and of course, progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Uh, Kim, let me ask you a question I uh, asked Mark before. Uh, honestly, uh, we won the presidential race, which was great. Uh, but once you got beyond, uh, the save democracy, you can't understate that too much though. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, Democrats really took a beating. Um, they didn't perform as well as we expected and take control of the Senate because we still have two races left in Georgia. Uh, we lost several seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, we failed to pick up any legislative chambers uh, in state legislative races, which is a big problem because those states are in charge of the redistricting. Uh, what happened? I mean, it's great. I feel like skunk at the garden party uh, because we won this big presidential race, but everything else was pretty dismal. What do you think happened? Well, there's the shy Trump voters. You know, going into this race, I had hoped that there would be uh, an effect in the other way, what some people call the Bradley effect or the Wilder effect, where there are voters who are unwilling to ad uh, admit to voting for someone um, because of party, race, gender. And, uh, and I was hoping that it would go the way of Biden, that there would be Trump voters, traditional Trump voters that would go in the box and vote for Biden instead. And I think it went the other way. You know, we, despite the the greatest GOTV effort in history and the largest number of Americans voting at 74 million, um, we underestimated the performance of Trump voters. And it did show up in, um, across the way. I mean, in the House, we're now at uh, 218 to 203 with 14 outstanding um, those are predominantly in New York and California, where um, uh, absentee or mail-in ballots are still being uh, counted. But I think when it's done, we'll probably only have a 10-seat difference between the House and, I know, um, between the Republicans and the Democrats in the House. The Democrats still have the House, most importantly. Um, but we can expect to see some of those reper repercussions coming back against House leadership. The same way, as you mentioned, in gubernatorial and state house. Going in, there were 11 governor races, governor's races that were up, mostly incumbents. Um, Republicans flipped one in Montana. Um, but in the state houses, which, you know, millions of dollars have gone into uh, changing or flipping the state houses, you know, the redistricting uh, effort held, um, headed by former Attorney General Eric Holder, 
And we ended up losing just two chambers. We lost two chambers. There's only two chambers, and that was New Hampshire and the flipped. Had flipped. Democrats have flipped it last time in 2018. Republicans flipped it back. This is the smallest number of state control changes that has happened since 1944. Yeah, it's really uh, amazing. I remember, actually, I hadn't paid any attention to the state legislative races until I read about it in Demlist, and I was really shocked when I read it uh, because there was all this talk earlier in the year about the big Democratic initiative to take control of state legislative chambers to prepare for the redistricting after the 2020 census, uh, but it didn't happen. And uh, Democrats are going to, that's going to bite the Democrat butt, Democratic butt for the next 10 years um, after redistricting. Uh, let me, you know, I want to say something um, about what I saw in the exit polls that was a real problem for Democrats. Uh, Demo- uh, people, the biggest single voting concern that voters told the exit pollsters was the economy. And Republicans running in congressional races, uh, among the voters who said that the economy was the big issue, and that was the single biggest issue, uh, Republicans at the House congressional level won 87 to 13. Uh, We won uh, with voters who were worried about the pandemic. We won with voters who were concerned about racial justice. Uh, But when, when it came to the economy, we got clobbered. Uh, and I think that means Democrats need a much stronger economic message uh, than they uh, communicated during the uh, 2020 uh, campaign, because you can't you can't take the biggest issue to voters, get beat 87 to 13 and live to tell about it. Uh, and I think that's something we're going to have to uh, discuss a lot. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Kim. Uh, We'll tell us a little bit about, and I think you're writing about it for Demolist today. Uh, tell us what happened in terms of uh, issues and ballot initiatives at the state level. There's always a lot of activity there, but uh, hardly anybody talks about it because they're so preoccupied uh, with the presidential race and the Senate races. Uh, what can you tell us about the ballot initiatives on the, uh, that were voters uh, voted on on November 3rd? So this is, there are some bright spots. Um, you know, ballot initiatives is a process, or a process that is unfamiliar to many Americans, at least until it hits their backyard, like other, other votes. Um, and yet it is the, one of the most direct forms of democracy. Uh, they've actually been around for 120 years. The first was with the Oregon process in 1902. And there are 26 states in D.C. now that allow citizen referendum. So again, direct democracy where the citizens can overturn or keep uh, legislation or keep the legislature in check. Every state has some form of ballot uh, initiative option, um, but the rest are primarily constitutional. So by far and away, the biggest elephant in the room, the the 100-pound gorilla, was California's Prop 22 which was basically a showdown between labor and the gig economy. And it was about allowing Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, the others uh, to continue to 
treat their employees as contractors, therefore not being required to provide certain employee benefits, et cetera. Uh, there was over a billion dollars that was spent wow. on initiatives across the country. 200 million of that was spent on this initiative, primarily by the Ubers of the world. And um, they won. It passed by to allow them to continue to uh, have, treat their um, the drivers as contractors. It passed 58, 58%. But there are are others as well. Um, marijuana was, um, as has been continuously for several cycles now, you know, has been on the, was on the ballot um, and, and virtually every single one of those passed. Arizona, Montana, New Jersey voted to legalize recreational cannabis. Mississippi voted to make it medicinal. South Dakota became the first to both prove it, legalize it and um, legalized it as a medicinal remedy. Um, and um, uh, the District of Columbia legalized shrooms. So, okay. <laughs> but there are many other issues. Police reform, gay rights. Nevada became, Nevada, excuse me, the first country, I mean, first state in the country um, to actually enshrine in its constitution protections for gay marriage, which on one hand is amazing, it's the first one. But uh, there are a number of other issues. Police reform. Uh, you know, this is on the the local level. In uh, out of twenty initiatives uh, advocating for police reform, nineteen of them passed. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so there there have been some bright spots in there. You know, it seems to me, you know, every two years when we discuss ballot initiatives progressives do a lot better yeah. in ballot initiatives than they do candidate elections. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, again, I think it comes down to what's your own backyard. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, you know, the thing about ballot initiatives, and it's important, it's, it's such a powerful tool, tool, but it can help drive the elections or other elections on the ticket, or they can pull them down. And that's why so much money is put into them as well. They For, yeah. for many cycles, this has been. Yeah, it's been really true. Uh, Kim, thanks for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. That's all for today, friends. Thanks to our guests, Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, Kimberly Scott, publisher of Demlist, and progressive activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays at 3 p.m. If Eastern time, if the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and if Trump doesn't declare martial law before he's out the door. Stay tuned. We'll be back here next Monday at 3 o'clock Eastern, same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Yes, subscribe to Demlist. What's yep. the website, Kim? www.demlist.com demlist.com go there now and subscribe I do and so does Brad yeah I learn a lot on it we try to educate and inform God, it's not easy I to educate me either <laughs> okay <laughs> 
State Farm. Habla Daniela. Hola, Daniela. Soy José. ¿Te acuerdas que mi auto nuevo venía con mil detectores? Alarmas, cámaras, sensores, de todo. Claro. Bueno, eh, le faltó el detector de canciones que me gustan en la radio. Uh -huh. Me emocioné cantando. Me distraje y choqué una columna cuando parqueaba. Tranquilo. Aquí estamos para ayudarte. No canto más. Te prometo. Elige a quien esté aquí para ayudar a que la vida vaya bien. Habla hoy con un agente de State Farm. She sleeps hot, even when the weather outside is frightful. Jack Frost here likes it cool. Introducing the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Now temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But will it keep me asleep? Yes. It intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you both effortlessly comfortable. Will I have more energy for holiday shopping? Does Rudolph have a red nose? Save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base. Plus special financing ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details.